Good morning. Great to hear your singing, to share it together in worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be praying for me. I uh, am praying about what, where to go next. Uh, probably won't uh, set into a new series until February or so uh, with the schedule and some things that we've got going on. Of course, we have the wonderful building dedication next Sunday. I hope that you'll be able to be here for that. And, uh, but you'd be praying that the Lord would direct me and lead me uh, to the next series that would be uh, best for our church at this peculiar time in our church's life. Appreciate that. If you take your Bibles, turn along with me this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. How many of you have had a dark night of the soul? You don't have to raise your hand. I also want to ask how many of you are going through that right now? A time when the circumstances of life seem to be absolutely overwhelming to you? A time when you weren't sure you were going to be able to go on? Maybe it was a time that you were experiencing because of a job loss or uh, trouble at work or maybe it was because of a diagnosis or because of a loss of a loved one or maybe you found yourself in the pit of despair because of a strained relationship or maybe a wayward child or a difficult parent relationship or a struggling marriage or maybe you can't even identify why you were feeling low or are feeling low Lots of things can contribute to a feeling of discouragement or even depression. Even a lack of sleep can be a contributing factor. A lack of sunlight can do that to us sometimes. You know, they have a name for that now. Seasonal affective disorder. Sad. That's creative. I don't know who comes up with these things, but here's a description from the internet of what seasonal affective disorder is. Seasonal affective disorder occurs in climates where there is less sunlight at certain times of the year. Symptoms include fatigue, depression, hopelessness, and social withdrawal. These are realities for us. Realities of feeling discouraged and down at times. How many of you struggle to get through January and February. The holidays are all over. The excitement of it is done. The tree's down. Everything's put away. It's all back to normal. It's cold and snowy, and you can't wait for spring. Daylight is still pretty short, though it's getting longer every day. All of that can affect our outlook, can affect our mood, and leave us feeling down in the dumps. In our text this morning, we're going to see the Apostle Paul struggle with his own discouragement and despair. His discouragement, however, was not caused by fewer hours of sunlight. His was caused by a very difficult relationship. A difficult relationship with a whole church, the church at Corinth. But the Lord did not leave him in that pit of despair. God's truth came in like sunlight into the darkness. 
God's truth remembered, believed, and applied to the soul helped Paul to climb out of that pit of despair. And it can help us too. And so with that in mind, I want us to look together at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Will you join with me as we pray? Lord, we come before you this morning as a needy people. Some of us are discouraged and distressed because of the uncertainties of life, because of the circumstances of our lives. So we come before you as a needy people. And as the old Anglican prayer says, Lord, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Help us this morning, Lord, to find our hope in you. Not in our circumstances. Hope not in ourselves, but in you in your gospel, in your promises, and in your presence. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's safe to say that Paul had a complicated relationship with the church at Corinth. This was not an easy, breezy, pick-up-where-we-left-off kind of relationship. It was difficult at every point. On Paul's second missionary journey, he had spent a year and a half there in Corinth preaching and teaching and seeking to help establish and strengthen that young church that was there. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. After that, Paul left Corinth, and it wasn't very long before he began to hear disturbing reports, news about the Corinthian church that they were allowing immorality to go unaddressed within the church. They were allowing things to go on in the church that unbelievers would blush about. So Paul wrote them a letter confronting them and urging them to repent of this immorality. That letter is lost to us. We don't have that letter. There's lots of letters the Apostle Paul wrote and other apostles wrote that we don't have. We have what God wanted us to have. We have the letters that were inspired of God and preserved for us in our Bibles. But that letter is lost to us. Paul wrote them a letter confronting them and urging them to repent of their immorality. 
Paul mentions this letter of confrontation in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul later heard further disturbing reports about the church at Corinth, that there were divisions in the church with people proclaiming their allegiance to this or that teacher. They were continuing to allow immorality in their midst despite Paul's letter of confrontation. And they were actually proud of it. They thought it was a sign of their grace and magnanimity as the people of God. Along with these reports came a letter from the Corinthian church asking Paul to clarify some things for them. So in response to their letter and the concerning reports he had heard, Paul wrote the letter we call 1 Corinthians. Paul was in Ephesus at this time and he wanted to stay there longer, so he sent Timothy to them. We learn that in 1 Corinthians 4.17. So he sends his adjutant, Timothy, to go and try to make things better. Well, the situation in Corinth did not improve, for Paul heard further reports, probably from Timothy, that caused him great anguish. On top of everything else, there had arisen within the church at Corinth some self-styled apostles, super apostles. If Paul was an apostle, they said, we're super apostles. False teachers were claiming to be apostles who were undermining Paul's ministry and qualifications, his leadership, and his apostleship in an effort to gain greater control over the believers there in Corinth. So there was a power struggle going on. In light of this new threat, Paul left Ephesus and he made a visit to Corinth. What he calls the painful visit or the sorrowful visit in 2 Corinthians 2.1. This visit did not go well because there with Paul in their presence, the Corinthians failed to defend Paul in the face of his detractors. So Paul left, not wanting to be where he's not wanted, and he returned to Ephesus And from Ephesus, he wrote to them again. This letter, like the first letter Paul wrote to them, is lost to us. But it's known as the severe letter, chapter 2 and verse 4. This severe letter of confrontation was delivered to Corinth by Titus, chapter 7, verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. Paul then went to Troas. So he delivers this severe letter of rebuke calling the church of Corinth to repentance. He goes to Troas where he's supposed to meet up with Titus so he can hear how this letter was received. It was a hard letter to write. He had to say some hard things and he wasn't sure how they were going to respond to it. And if the past was any indicator, it wasn't going to be a good outcome. And so while he's waiting there in Troas to meet up with Titus... He was an emotional and spiritual mess. How would the Corinthians respond to this severe letter? How was this going to play out? There were many unknowns, many uncertainties. He personally was under attack. His authority as an apostle was under attack. And it wasn't at all clear what the future of the church at Corinth, or for that matter, the churches in the region, would be like. 
And Paul felt it. He was on pins and needles about the situation in Corinth. And now about the whereabouts of Titus because Titus hasn't shown up. They're supposed to rendezvous in Troas, but there's no sign of Titus. Where is Titus? Where's the news? What's happening? You know, in our day and age, that's pretty easy to to find out where our loved one is at any given time. You can track them on your phone. You do it. I know you do. Moms and dads, tracking your kids, wherever they are. Well, Paul had no such option. He couldn't just call Titus and say, hey man, where are you? We're supposed to meet here. What's going on? Hey, how did they receive that letter? What's the word? He has no idea. So we read in 2 Corinthians 2 at verse 12. Again, join me there. 2 Corinthians 2, 12. This is all the lead up, all right? Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. No rest for my spirit. You ever been there? You ever felt that way? You can't sleep? You're not hungry? You want to distract yourself, but your mind just keeps going back and back and back to the same issue, the same troubles. That's where Paul was. 2 Corinthians 7, 5 gives us even more insight. 2 Corinthians 7, 5, let me just read it for you. For even when we came into Macedonia, okay, this is, this is where Paul left Troas. He finally goes to Macedonia to meet Titus, his brother, in the Lord. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. Trouble without and trouble within. Finally, in Macedonia, Paul and Titus were reunited. They finally connected. And Titus could share with Paul what had occurred. And he gave him the news from Corinth. And God be praised, the Corinthians had responded well to Paul's severe letter of rebuke and correction. They had repented. 2 Corinthians 7, 6 and 7 says this, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul says, I was depressed. I was discouraged. I was downtrodden. But God comforted me by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he has comfort, was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. They loved the Apostle Paul. They saw the error of their ways, at least largely, and they had repented of much of their sin. So it's a wonderful story of repentance and reconciliation of relief for the Apostle Paul, of joy after overwhelming sorrow. And then Paul writes 2 Corinthians to commend the Corinthians on their repentance and their welcoming of Paul's letter, his severe letter, but also to further defend his apostleship from these ongoing attacks that were still being launched against him by these false apostles. But what Paul writes in our text this morning, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he is recounting how he felt before he heard the news about the Corinthians' repentance. 
This is before he felt the relief and the joy of hearing of how they had received well his letter. Paul was beside himself with anguish and discouragement before he heard the news from Titus. It was so bad that even when the Lord opened a door of opportunity for gospel advance, Paul couldn't find the strength or the energy or the focus or whatever to fully take advantage of that opportunity. He had to pass on that opportunity, the the fullness of that opportunity. So he left and it says he went on to Macedonia. But in the midst of his discouragement and despair, the Lord reminded Paul of truth. Reasons that Paul could be joyously thankful even in the midst of uncertainty and discouragement. And that's what we're going to find as well in our text this morning. Reasons that we can be joyously thankful even in the midst of all of life's uncertainties and discouragements. Reason for joyous thanks. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, we're going to see together three reasons for joyful thanksgiving in the midst of life's uncertainties and discouragements. All right, first reason, here we go. We can give joyful thanksgiving for our life of glorious captivity to Christ. We can give joyous thanksgiving for our life of glorious captivity to Christ. As Paul waited for word from Titus about the Corinthians, he had no rest for his soul. And it was so bad that he apparently failed to take full advantage of these ministry opportunities that the Lord had opened up for him. And this was not the first time or the last time that Paul would experience anguish of soul. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 1.8, just probably a page before 2 Corinthians 1 8, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, probably in Ephesus, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. I love how the Bible is so real. It doesn't treat life like something that's to be soared over and, you know, we just we just go from victory to victory, we just go from joy to joy. Not at all. The Apostle Paul, of all people, experienced severe discouragement, depression, even despairing of life itself. Life is hard. And the Bible doesn't whitewash that fact. It doesn't sugarcoat it. And in the midst of such uncertainty and sorrow and discouragement, the Lord reminds Paul of what was true. Look with me at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul was able to shake himself out of the discouragement with the truth that God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, in speaking of triumph here, Paul is referencing something very specific to his culture. The the Roman triumphal procession. You may have seen things like that in movies. This Roman triumphal procession serves as a metaphor 
for our position in Christ. Our constant position in Christ. The Roman triumphal procession was a very well-known custom and event in the Roman world. When the Romans had been victorious in battle, conquering their enemies and extending the empire, the returning victorious general would often be honored by the Roman emperor with a triumphal procession through the streets of Rome. And so the general, along with many of his soldiers, would march through the crowd-lined streets of Rome, hailed as conquerors and heroes and victors. It was an unparalleled display of glory and power, and it was an unparalleled honor to be thrown one. Now many have read this verse and understood it to mean that Jesus is our victorious general, and that we as Christians are his foot soldiers following behind him in this grand parade, sharing in his victory, sharing in his glory, and sharing in his honor. Now that is certainly a true principle. Romans 8.37 says that in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. We overwhelmingly conquer None are able to defeat us. In the context there, Paul goes through a long list of the things that aren't able to separate us from the love of God. They've all been defeated. And we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. That's true. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We do have victory in Jesus. Praise God. It's true. So there's no doubt that we share in Christ's victory and even share in something of the honor and glory that is his. But is this what Paul has in mind here? Many think that it is not precisely what Paul has in mind. For also in the Roman triumphal procession would have been captured soldiers from the enemy army who were defeated and transported back to Rome, paraded through the streets as living trophies of a glorious victory. Many of these captured soldiers would be marched to their death. Others of them would be sold into slavery. Now given the tone of Paul's letter here and the emphasis on his own weakness and suffering and at times discouragement, it's believed that Paul actually has this picture in view here. Now, we like the former picture better, don't we? Foot soldiers following our conquering general, sharing in his glory and honor. We like that. But do we like the picture of us as being captives led through the streets for the glory of the conquering general? Well... You might not like it, but I think that's the image that Paul is putting forth here. Paul frequently referred to himself as a slave of Christ. Many of our translations translate that word slave as bondservant. It sort of lessens it. It helps us not to make equations with the slavery of the South 
and in this country, the horrors of it. But the reality is, the word is slave. And Paul referred to himself as a slave of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, this very book. He says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. Not only is Paul a slave of Christ, he says, I'm a slave of you, the Corinthians. I'm your slave for the sake of Christ. I am Christ's slave, and he has sent me to be your slave. And that's who I am. That's what I'm about. So it may very well be that Paul is actually picturing himself here as among the defeated foes of Christ who've been captured and are now the slaves of Christ. And that may seem a strange thing to us to give joyous thanksgiving for. We live in a time when any idea of submission or subjugation to the will of another is distasteful and hated. We prize freedom above all else. But submission to Jesus Christ is actually the path to life and blessing and the greatest freedom of all. If the Son sets you free, you are free what? Indeed. All the while, willful rejection of Jesus for the sake of personal freedom is the sure path to destruction. Matthew 16, 25 says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those are the words of Jesus. You seek to hold on to your life, you're gonna lose it. You seek to maintain your own personal freedom, your total autonomy, not gonna have anybody tell you what to do. You're gonna lose your life. You're gonna be led to destruction. But you lay down your life, you submit your freedom to God and to his son Jesus Christ and you end up finding life eternally. Paul pictures himself as being led in this glorious procession of God and he is being led along as a slave who's been captured by Christ and whose life has been put into a new era of service and purpose. Paul was conquered and taken captive on the road to Damascus and he was never the same again. His life totally changed because he'd been conquered by Christ. He'd been captivated by Christ. He'd become the slave of Christ. And now this blessed captivity to Christ is a captivity in which he will actually share in the glory of his Lord and Master. This is not your average kind of captivity. This is not your typical slavery. For we have a Lord and Master who is good and compassionate and kind and who sacrifices all on behalf of those who are His. We have a Lord and Master who richly rewards His servants for all eternity. A Lord and Master who is loving and gracious and faithful at every turn. Whether, in Paul, whether Paul intends the metaphor here to be that of a victorious soldier or a, captur- a captured slave, either way, he intends it as a glorious picture of our new life in Jesus Christ. 
in the pit of despair, when we're surrounded by uncertain circumstances and discouragements of every kind, remember who you are. Remember who you belong to. Remember who captured you. Remember whose servant you are. And remember the promised blessing that is to come for those who serve faithfully. We are being led by God in glorious captivity to Christ. A captivity that has resulted in life and joy and victory and glory. Remember who you are. Another reason to give thanks, secondly, for our life. We give thanks for our life that is the aroma of Christ both to God and to others. Continuing with his analogy of the Roman triumphal procession, Paul says that God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. During this Roman triumphal procession, flowers would be thrown at the passing procession and those flowers crushed under the feet of those passing by would release their sweet aroma through the streets. Likewise, there would be incense burning along the parade route ladening the air with the sweet smell and covering over the normal unpleasant smells of a dirty and very crowded city. Paul says we as Christians are the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. Wherever you go, you are like a censure with the sweet aroma of incense, the incense of the knowledge of God filling the room where you go. What a beautiful picture of who the Christian is to be and the effect we're to have on those around us. Just by our being, just by our living, we are the sweet aroma of God and the knowledge of God. Christians live different than the world around us. At least we're supposed to. And when we do, and when we're walking with the Lord and living healthy lives as believers, the result is we emit a sweet aroma to those around us wherever we go. With our speech, with our responses, with our attitude, with our love, with how we care for others, we give off the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. Now look with me at verse 15. We are a fragrance of Christ to God. Paul now is probably switching metaphors here slightly from the sweet smell of flowers and burning incense along the parade route to the savory smell of a burning sacrifice rising up to God. We are a fragrance of Christ. Christ is the sacrifice given for us and when we're saved we are spiritually united to him and his sacrifice so that the perfect life he lived is credited to us and the death that our sins deserve is laid upon him that's what happens at salvation God credits our sin to Christ punishes that sin on the cross pours out his wrath on his son and at the same time that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ the perfections of Jesus Christ are credited to us 
That's what it means to be in Christ. It is to be spiritually united with him so that the life he lived is credited to us. The life we live is credited to him. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. Hallelujah, and it's all by faith. It's the gift of God. You can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. But God gives it to you as a gift. You receive it simply by faith, trusting in Jesus alone to save you. And in that moment of faith, God spiritually unites us with his son, Jesus Christ. And so we've come to be united with Christ and with his sacrifice so that we are the fragrance of Christ to God. Romans 12.1 has a similar idea. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. But this fragrance, this smell, this savory smell is not just rising to God. Others can smell this fragrance of Christ too, the people around us. And notice there are just two categories of people. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. Only two kinds of people in the world. I wonder this morning, which are you? Are you numbered among those who are being saved or are you numbered among those still who are yet perishing? The fragrance of Christ smells very different to these two categories of people. Look at verse 16. For those who are perishing, the fragrance of Christ smells like death. And there resultant rejection of Christ leads them to death. Those who are perishing don't like to hear about Jesus very much. Certainly not the convicting stuff about Jesus. Oh, if you want to keep Jesus a baby, that's okay. But when Jesus starts telling me what to do and how to live and what to believe, that's a different thing. That smells like death. That smells like slavery. They smell death, and in smelling this, it leads them to death. But for others, for others, by God's mercy, the fragrance of Christ smells like life, and it leads them to life. It smells like a better way of living. It smells like truth. It smells like reality. Smells like salvation. And it leads them to salvation. They believe on Jesus and they find eternal life. Similar to what Paul said about the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, the word of the cross, the gospel, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That sounds like crazy talk. You believe what? About who? foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved it is the power of God there are only two categories of people in the world those who are perishing and those who are being saved I wonder today which one characterizes you 
When you hear the gospel, do you hear life? Is it sweet to you? Or is it distasteful? Does it smell bad? If it does, I'd urge you to cry out to, for, to God for mercy and ask God to change your sniffer. <laughs> ask God to cause the smell of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be a sweet aroma to you. That it might lead you not to death, but to life everlasting through faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, wherever you go, in every place, in every interaction, you are the aroma of Christ in every place and under every circumstance. You take with you the aroma, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God wherever you go. How you doing with that? Can others smell it clearly? Ask God to help you emit that beautifully sweet aroma that is the knowledge of God in every place. Paul saw his role as being an aroma emitter and it gave him purpose beyond his troubles and circumstances. Thirdly and finally, giving thanks for our life of humble service in Christ before God. When faced with its reality of being the fragrance of Christ to the world, Paul feels rightly overwhelmed. Look at how he ends verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can live up to this? Who can be such an aroma in every place? The spiritual realities of heaven and hell, of life and death, of destruction and salvation have a way of humbling us and well they should. To know that we represent Christ before a watching and sniffing world. That we are the fragrance of Christ in the midst of the rotting garbage heaps of the world systems. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul is in effect saying here, I can't do this by myself. But later he reveals where our sufficiency actually comes from. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 3, 5. 2 Corinthians 3, 5. Again, just maybe about a page to your right. He says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. There's the, there's the key. Who's sufficient for these things? None of us are. But God is our sufficiency. He supplies all we need in every circumstance and every situation to every person if we will depend on him. Paul then contrasts himself with the others. He says, we're not like the others. We're not like the many, verse 17. Literally, he says, we're not like the hoi polloi. The many who are merely peddling the word of God. He's talking about these so-called super apostles who were peddling the word of God. They were like common peddlers hawking the product and then 
changing the message just to make a buck or gain a following or make a name for themselves. The word peddling here was also used in the wine trade for diluting the product, watering it down, and selling it at exorbitant prices, increasing your profit. This is what was going on in Corinth among the false teachers and the false apostles. They were using the word of God merely as a way of promoting themselves, of advancing themselves. They were diluting the word of God and only preaching the bits that people wanted to hear. Man, I'm glad that doesn't happen today. And Paul says, I'm not like them. Instead, Paul ministered from a place of humility and sincerity. From humility in that he knew that in his own strength he was insufficient for this ministry. To stand in the gap between heaven and hell for people. To be a consistent source of sweet aroma on behalf of God. He ministered in humility knowing that God had to be his sufficiency. That he depended on the strength of another, someone outside of himself. He ministered not only in humility, but he ministered also in sincerity. And that he wasn't in ministry for what he could get out of it. He hadn't come to fleece the flock, but to serve the flock, to care for the flock, to love the flock, and to sacrifice himself for the sake of the flock. Paul spoke in Christ, secure in his spiritual union with Christ. Paul spoke in the power of Christ, the power that Christ supplied, and he spoke in Christ before God. He spoke knowing that God heard every word that he uttered, that he saw every action, and that God knew every motive of his heart. This knowledge of God's ever-present witness to his ministry kept Paul humbly and sincerely serving. And he was thankful for it because it kept him on track. This is the truth that Paul called to mind in the dark night of his soul. It tempered his sorrows and motivated his service. It kept him from spiraling down into a poor pity party session where he said, poor me, and focused on himself and his own problems. He realized he'd been captured by Christ, that he was the slave of a glorious and gracious master who had things for him to do, people for him to serve, places for him to go. And Paul found reason in these things for joyous thanksgiving. For his life of glorious captivity to Christ, for his life that was the aroma of Christ to God and to others, and for his life of humble service in Christ before God. And as it was for the Apostle Paul, so it can be for us. God's truth remembered, believed, and applied can help us climb out of any pit of despair that we find ourselves in. And we can be led, like the Apostle Paul, in triumph. The triumph of our Master, who leads us into a freedom we could have never had 
without being slaves of Christ who leads us into a glory and an honor and a victory that would have never been ours apart from Christ who leads us to be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God which fills the air around us and ascends to the very throne of God as a well-pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. This is in the midst of anything you're going through. The truth of God's word is a balm for our souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there are no doubt some within our midst who are experiencing such a dark night of the soul. Struggling through each day, preoccupied with thoughts of other things, even perhaps struggling to listen to this message today because of burdens on their hearts and concerns on their minds. Lord, minister your comfort to them even now as I pray. May they be assured that you are always leading us in triumph. Triumph doesn't always look like living above your problems. Sometimes it looks like humbly enduring them, learning from them, serving others in the midst of them. Teach us these things, Lord, for your glory that we might be the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. That we might serve you as your slaves, captive to the glorious master, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to grow in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.